Lord, speak to us now. Speak to us from your word through your Holy Spirit. Touch that deep, deep place in our hearts that only you can touch. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I imagine that we've all had the uh, frustrating and embarrassing experience of missing out on something that we had fully intended to participate in. Have you ever showed up in an event, like a, a band concert maybe, or a show, or one of your kids' sporting events, and you somehow got your wires crossed, and you got there late, and you missed out on the main thing? Has that ever happened to you? That's a bad feeling, isn't it? I uh, was at a wedding once where the groom just didn't show up. I don't know if he got the day wrong or uh, perhaps he overslept after a wild bachelor's party the night before or I don't know if he ran out of gas on the way to the wedding or just what happened, but we were all there anticipating a beautiful ceremony where the bride and groom would exchange vows and exchange rings and, of course, the much-anticipated kiss to seal it all, and we were there, and we were waiting, and we were waiting, and the bride looked absolutely stunning, but after about 30 minutes, she looked absolutely stunned and humiliated. I actually found her hiding out in a dark room, just reduced to tears because her husband-to-be missed her wedding day, missed the main thing. Well, As disappointing as it is to miss a concert or a show or a sports event or even your own wedding, that pales in comparison to the tragedy that it would be to miss the main thing in all of life. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and there's a little study outline in your worship folder that you can pull out and and follow along with us. And I should say that if you are a guest with us today, we want you to know that in our church, every weekend, we teach and preach from this book, from the Bible. And we do that every weekend. And then in our small groups during the week, we come together to encourage each other and help each other understand what the Bible says and especially how to apply it to our lives. So we believe in the Bible around here. We believe it's different than any other book, that it's unique, that it's the very word of God. And the Bible tells us clearly that there is a main thing in life. Listen as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first 11 verses, where the apostle Paul wrote this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, remember that phrase, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain." On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, 
Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Let me draw your attention to that one phrase in verse 3. Do you see it? As of first importance. That's telling us that there is something in life that is more important than everything else in life. There is a main thing. And as Stephen Covey wrote many years ago, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. But what is it? What is this main thing in life? What is that thing that is of first importance that we need to be centered in that if we should somehow miss, it would be the greatest tragedy of all? Well, look back at verse 1. He wrote, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you. There it is, the gospel. The gospel is the main thing. The gospel is that thing which is said to be of first importance. And the reason the gospel is the main thing is because God thinks it's the main thing. The great preacher from years ago, Charles Spurgeon, said this. Do you know, my dear unsaved hearer, what God's estimate of the gospel is? Do you not know that it has been the chief subject of his thoughts and acts from all of eternity? He looks on the gospel as the grandest of all of his works. You cannot imagine that he has sent his gospel into the world to be a football for you to play with. You surely cannot believe that God sent his gospel into the world for you to make a toy of it and then put away all thought of it out of your souls. You cannot even speak of the gospel irreverently without committing a great sin. You see, each of us has chosen something in our lives to be our main thing, that thing that drives our life, that controls us. But the question is, is your main thing the main thing? The thing that God says is of first importance. Well, I want you to think about that today. We're going to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what exactly is this gospel that's so important? What is it about? Why does it matter so much? And why should it matter so much to me? Well, these first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15 give us some beautiful insights into those questions. So let's come to understand several things today about the gospel, okay? Number one, the gospel is for both believers and unbelievers, Listen again to what he wrote. Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you. Now, I've got to admit, this has been a relatively new learning for me. Over the past two or three years, I've come to understand and grasp much better that the gospel is for both believers and unbelievers. You see, growing up, somehow I got the notion in my mind that the gospel of Jesus Christ was only for unbelievers. It was for unsaved people. It was that message that once believed got you into Christianity. It got you into the kingdom. But then once you were saved, you kind of moved on from the gospel to the real work of becoming a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. That's kind of the notion that got into my head growing up. But I don't believe that anymore. I believe what Tim Keller wrote. The gospel, he said, is not the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Z of Christianity. You never move on from the gospel. You don't outgrow it as a Christian. You don't leave it behind on your spiritual journey to move on to the really 
important stuff. I believe what C.J. Mahaney wrote, the gospel is not just one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes are contained in. Rightly approached, all the topics you will study and focus on as a believer in Jesus Christ will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for unbelievers. They need to hear and receive the gospel. And I pray that some of you will do that today. But it is also for Christians. It's for believers. I really believe we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves and to each other every day. Paul said, I'm going to remind you, brothers, saved people, born-again people of the gospel that I preached to you back when you were not yet believers. It's for both. Second, the gospel is news to be proclaimed and received. Verse 1 again, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you or proclaimed to you, which you received, in which you stand. You know, the word gospel actually means what? Good news. So the gospel is news. I don't know about you, but when I think about news, I think of what I do most nights at about 6.30 when I turn on the television set and I watch the news. And lately, it's just kind of been unsettling and disturbing to watch the news and hear what's going on in our world. But what is news? Isn't news the reporting of something that has happened? Isn't that what news reporters and news anchors do, report to us what has happened? Or is that what, that what they're supposed to do? Just tell us what happened. Just tell us the news. Well, back to 1 Corinthians 15, it says the, the gospel is good news, which means it's a report of something that happened in history, on the planet, in a particular place many years ago. And it's said to be good. That's God's estimate of this news. It's good. It's beneficial. It's advantageous. It's positive for us. God says that the gospel is news. It's good news that all people need to hear and to receive. And here's why. Number three, the gospel has the power to save people. To save people. Again, verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Now, how many of you grew up in church? Can I see your hands? Okay, you grew up in church. You, you probably grew up hearing maybe the word saved, right? I mean, that's a word that's familiar to a lot of folks who grew up in church, who are Christians, but it might be new to those of you who are just encountering the gospel for the first time. What does saved mean? Well, the word literally means to be delivered or to be rescued, which begs the question, rescued from what? <laughs> saved from what? Delivered from what? That's a great question. We're going to come back and try to answer that in a few minutes, but First, just notice here in this verse, the present tense by which you are being saved. Does that strike you as a little bit odd? Christians often use the word saved in the past tense, don't they? Did you get saved? As if it was like an event at a point in time in the past, which it is. But here Paul says the gospel is saving you, present tense. And really the Bible 
paints a full-orbed picture of salvation as something that happened and is happening and will happen. And so if you are saved, you can say it this way. I was saved and I am being saved and one day I will be saved. There's a past, present, and future aspect of salvation. If you're new to this, for now, just understand that the gospel message has the incredible power to change a person's standing with our creator, with God, by saving us. But it only saves those who hear it and respond to it in a certain way, and that's number four. The gospel only saves those who hold fast to it with persevering faith. Would you say that phrase with me? Persevering faith. Verse 2, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, at this point in his letter, Paul hasn't even yet told the readers or us what the gospel is, what the good news is, but he's going to do that in the next few verses. But here, he just wants to make sure that all of us understand that there's only one effective response to hearing the gospel message, and that is true faith. To believe it and to really deeply, at the core of your being, believe the gospel. The gospel only saves people who truly, deeply believe it. And there's a little caution here, a a warning. Do you see it? Unless you believed, what does it say? In vain. And that tells us that there's true belief and false belief. There's genuine belief and there's empty faith. There's living, active belief and faith and there's dead, empty, ineffective faith. Did you know that not everyone who claims to be saved is saved? Jesus talked about that a lot in his sermon. One evidence of genuine faith is that it lasts, it perseveres, it holds on for the long run. Despite persecution, despite hardship, despite difficulty, despite ridicule or insults, true faith keeps holding on to the gospel. Sure, there might be seasons of doubt that creep in. There might be short lapses in belief. But the Bible is clear that true faith holds fast to the gospel till the end. We'll always return to the object of faith. So we need to understand there's living faith and there's dead, empty faith. And I wonder, which do you have? Which kind of faith do you have today? Number five, the gospel, according to Paul, is not man-made. Verse three, verse three, for I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. So Paul is basically contending that he didn't make this stuff up. He received it from somebody, and he was simply delivering the message that he himself had received. He was simply the mailman, just delivering the mail. Who did he receive it from? Well, in another place, he tells us, Galatians chapter 1, Verse 11, he says, For I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ.
Christ. He's saying, I got this precious gospel message straight from Jesus Christ. And many Bible scholars believe that there was a season in Paul's life when he was in Arabia and that Jesus Christ himself appeared to Paul there in Arabia and explained the gospel to him and especially explained to him the meaning of certain events that happened on a hill called Golgotha in Jerusalem or just outside of Jerusalem a few years prior. But Jesus himself gave this gospel to Paul. Amen. (laughs) All right. It was not a product of his own imagination. He did not conjure this up in his own head. He got it from Jesus. The gospel is not man-made. It's from God. Therefore, we cannot tamper with it. We cannot alter it. It's not ours to change. It's the message. It's the main thing. Number six, the gospel consists of news about historical events. Now we get to the content of the gospel. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. That's not referring to what some of you are doing right now, but it's referring to, it's a euphemism for having passed away. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, Paul wrote. Now we said the gospel is news, news about certain happenings, and here they are. There's four of them, four gospel happenings. Do you see them? Christ, what? Died. He was buried. He was raised and he appeared. I call those the gospel events. Four of them and really two sets of two, two events and two proofs. Think of it like this. Christ died. How do we know that? He was buried. That's the proof. Christ was raised from the dead. How do we know that? He appeared. People saw him. Lots of people saw him. Now, let me draw your attention to three things here, three very important truths about the gospel. Do you see the little phrase? It says it twice, in accordance with the scriptures. You see that? He died according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures. That tells us that the gospel was a plan. It was planned and predicted ahead of time, and recorded in the scriptures. It was a plan that Jesus was born to a young virgin in Bethlehem's manger that first Christmas night, that Joseph later whisked the child and Mary away to Egypt to avoid Herod's jealous rage. It was all part of a plan that they eventually returned back to Nazareth where Jesus grew up and that he learned the Jewish scriptures as a young child and at the age of 12 went into the temple and confounded the religious leaders of his day with his knowledge that was part of a plan that at the age of 30 he went public and was baptized by john in the jordan river then was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by satan in the desert that was all planned out long before it happened that Jesus started teaching the crowds about the kingdom of God and performing miracles that astonished people, 
that he called 12 men into a special relationship with himself that he would train. That he would claim to be the son of God who actually came down to earth from heaven. This too was part of a plan. And that his claims would eventually enrage the religious establishment of his day. And that one night in a private and vulnerable moment in a garden, a favorite place of prayer, he would be betrayed by Judas into the hands of his enemies. That he would then endure an entire night of phony trials that were rigged against him. And that the Roman leader Pilate would cave in to pressure from the angry mob and end up releasing a criminal Barabbas to the crowd instead of the innocent Jesus. That Jesus would then be mocked and scourged by Roman soldiers and jeered at by the fickle Jewish crowds who turned against him. That he would be brutally nailed to a cross in the most humiliating of criminal executions reserved only for the scum of society. Friends, it was all a plan. It was all planned out in eternity past by God. You see, the gospel is a plan, a beautiful, saving plan. It says these events happened in accordance with the scriptures because these scriptures had been written hundreds of years before by the prophets of God. You can read about it. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 14, the plan of God for a savior to come to the world prophesied hundreds of years in advance. You see, it had to happen like it did because it was all part of a a marvelous plan to save people. It's beautiful. His resurrection from the grave was planned too. You must understand this. The gospel is a plan. The events happened the way they did because the God of all creation planned it out in eternity past, and then he executed it beautifully in time and space in the course of human history. It was a plan Second, these events, the death, burial, resurrection, appearances of Jesus were seen by eyewitnesses. They were verifiable by those who were there. Hundreds of people saw Jesus of Nazareth be crucified. Hundreds of people saw that. That was not debated in that day. It was common knowledge. And hundreds of people saw him walking around after he died in evidence of his resurrection. Hundreds of people, at least 514, according to what Paul tells us here. It's interesting that Paul wrote this letter in the early to mid-50s A.D., and he says that some who had seen the resurrected Jesus were still alive. They hadn't fallen asleep. It's as if he was saying, look, if you don't want to believe me that Jesus rose from the dead... Why don't you go ask the people who actually were there who saw him? You can go knock on their door. They're still living. Firsthand eyewitness testimony, credible evidence in any courtroom that Jesus was alive. And you need to understand, there were many forces back in the first century that would have loved to have squashed Christianity if they could. But they couldn't. The eyewitness testimony was too strong, too compelling, too broad-based. Jesus had been crucified and Jesus had been raised. People saw him. And then Paul mentions three men in particular who had been transformed by seeing the risen Jesus. Do you see this? The first one was Cephas. Who's that? Peter, who we remember denied Jesus in Jesus' darkest hour, right? I don't know him. 
he said. Then he mentions James, and there are lots of Jameses in the New Testament. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Probably here referring to James, the brother, or we would say the half-brother of Jesus, the kid who grew up in Jesus' home with Jesus as his brother. Imagine that. John 7 tells us that Jesus' brothers thought he was nuts (laughs) during his ministry. They thought he was crazy. So James would have been a skeptic as well. Peter was a denier, and then Paul mentions himself. And we know that Paul was a killer of Christians. So all three of these guys were deniers and detractors, and yet they had been transformed by something. And skeptics of Christianity have the hardest time accounting for how did these three guys get so changed to the point where they were willing to die, and all of them did, for their belief that Jesus was alive. The transforming power of the gospel. That's what did it. The gospel includes miraculous historical events that were attested to by eyewitnesses and could not be denied, though many people wanted to. And then the third thing, these events, these gospel events contain deep theological significance. Especially three words, Christ died. What does it say? For our sin. Oh, that changes the whole ballgame right there. (laughs) Not for his own sins, which is what every onlooker in that crowd would have thought. There's a criminal being executed for his own crimes. No, he had no sins of his own. Even Pilate, in his moment of decision, as the crowd was jeering, the bloodthirsty crowd calling out for Jesus to be crucified, what did Pilate say? I find no fault in this man and never have truer words ever been uttered from human lips. No fault, no sin. In fact, Jesus once looked out at a crowd of people and he said, who of you can convict me of any sin? Now, don't you try that. (laughs) Because there will be voices that will speak up, but then silence. You see, Jesus had no sin of his own. Therefore, he could bear the sins of others. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. He had no sins of his own, so God could take the sins of humankind, including your sins and mine, and place them on his own son, Jesus, and punish his own son in our place. He died for our This is the gospel. He was our substitute, our sacrifice, our sin bearer, our scapegoat. God put our sins on Jesus and then poured out his holy, righteous, just wrath on his own son so that he could then turn and offer mercy to repentant sinners. If you want something deep to chew on, Think about this. God saved us by himself, from himself, for himself. Think about that. Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserve because of our many sins, thereby enabling God to show mercy to repentant sinners while still being righteous and just. So when Paul spoke of being saved, and we asked the question earlier, saved from what? 
The answer is, first and foremost, saved from our own sin and the righteous judgment that our sins deserve. God in his plan made a way for our sin to be paid for so we could be reconciled to our creator, God. This is good news. This is grace. This is Jesus getting what he didn't deserve so that we could get what we don't deserve. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Martin Luther called that the great exchange. We're on the cross. Jesus took our sin and then made available to believers his righteousness so that those who believe are viewed by God as he views his own son. This is extremely, extremely good news. I think if you really got that today, you might just shout amen. You might just dance like these guys and shake your body or you would at least say, yes, this is good news. This is really good news. And certainly you would repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as many in this room have done. This is grace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for grace that saves even the worst sinner. And that's the seventh truth about the gospel. The gospel reveals God's grace and applies it to sinful people, even God-haters. That's what Paul was. You know, in his B.C. life, he wasn't Paul. He was who? Saul. Saul of Tarsus. And one day on a trek to the city of Damascus to arrest and kill more Christians, Jesus showed up and knocked him off his high horse, put him down on his can and said, I'm Jesus Christ. And it all came together for Paul in that moment. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's real. It's true. Jesus is who he said he was. He's alive. And Paul repented of his sins, believed in Jesus, went to Arabia, was taught the gospel by Jesus himself. Then he returned to Jerusalem and began preaching the good news about this Jesus, whom he had once hated so viciously. So in verse 9, we have some autobiographical comments from Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, saved and an apostle of Jesus. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I think he's talking about the other apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, he's saying our message is the same. Whether you hear it from Paul or Peter or John or Matthew, so we preach and so you believed. Do you get the sense that Paul felt totally unworthy to be called an apostle of Jesus Christ? Do you think he felt totally unworthy to be saved, having been a God-hater and a Christian killer? I, I think he did. You know, one effect of the gospel on those who receive it is humility. It's humility. It just puts everything in perspective. And, and you step back and you go, Wow, you would save me? You would love me? You would pay for my sins? You would give me the righteousness of your son? 
what kind of otherworldly kind of love do you have, God? That's what the gospel does to people who receive it. Paul admits that it was all a work of God's grace. The gospel of grace had transformed Christianity's biggest persecutor into the church's greatest preacher. That same grace of God was still having its powerful effect in Paul. He says, it caused me to work hard and go out and spread the gospel that God has entrusted me with. Paul was so grateful that God had rescued him from sin and rebellion and judgment that he could not help but spread the gospel message no matter what the cost to himself. And that's what he spent his life doing. One of my favorite stories of the transforming power of the gospel of Christ is the story of Kirk Cameron. You know who he is and was? Uh, I've told this story a few times here before, but he was that teen heartthrob from back in the 80s on that show, Growing Pains, right? A while back, I heard Kirk give his testimony on, on the radio. He said that back when he was 18 years old, that he was an atheist. He didn't believe in God, didn't need God. He said, I had it all, fame, more money than I could count, more women than I could count, a bright future in the entertainment industry, whole thing. He said, one day a friend invited me to church, and I didn't really want to go to church, but since he was my friend, I went to church as a favor. He said he went, sat in the back row, crossed his arms, said, I'm just going to pick apart what that preacher says, hardened skeptic. He said, you know, it was interesting that day what the pastor did not say. So the pastor didn't say, hey, you ought to try Jesus because Jesus will give you more happiness and more peace. Kirk said, I already had happiness and peace and a whole lot more. That message would not have convicted me. But he said, here's what the pastor did say. If you don't have Jesus in your life, when it comes to judgment day, and you're standing there, and the books are opened, showing the list of sins you've committed against a holy God, if you don't have Jesus, you will be totally defenseless against those charges, and justice will take its course. And Kirk walked out of that church service thinking about that, and as he thought about how he had treated God in his life, he started to get rattled. He couldn't shake the sense of deep conviction that he had. He said this, When it all finally sunk in, when I came to grips with the truth that I would be doomed at the judgment without Jesus Christ, he said, I ran to Jesus. I ran to Jesus, pleading with him for his grace to make me right with my creator. Kirk Cameron repented of his sins, put his faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. And if you know his story, you know that ever since that day, he's been an outspoken spokesperson for the gospel of Jesus Christ, witnessing of Jesus wherever he goes. I love the story of Kirk's testimony because it illustrates the primary reason that people need Jesus. Now, listen, we all need Jesus for many, many reasons. But the primary reason you need Jesus and I need Jesus not to make our lives more pleasant, but to save us from the judgment that is coming. 
Because he alone is our sin bearer, our substitute, our sacrifice. No amount of good deeds or good works you or I could ever attempt to do would earn a place in heaven with God. Never. We could never be good enough. But Jesus was good enough. Do you get this? Thank God for the gospel. The gospel is truly the power of God for salvation to all who believe it. I'm going to close out this message with a quote from one of my favorite authors and pastors. I mentioned him earlier, C.J. Mahaney. He wrote this. If there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. And I don't just mean passionate about sharing it with other people. I mean passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us. And only the gospel ought to be. The gospel is the main thing. It is the thing of first importance. And so the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Is the main thing your main thing? Would you bow your heads with me? Let me ask you to respond to this by pondering several questions this morning. Do you believe the gospel? Do you? Are you certain that you are one of those who is being saved by holding fast to the gospel message? How sure are you? How certain are you that when judgment day comes and you're standing there before a holy God, how confident will you be that your sins have been erased? And that God will see you as righteous as his own son. How confident are you in that? How about this? Are you seizing every opportunity that God gives you to share the gospel with others? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ the main thing in your life?